One of the more volatile topics often in our country is that of taxes. From the very beginning of our country, which we'll remember, uh, Patriots Day tomorrow as we celebrate that, a part of that was the slogan, no taxation without representation. And the passionate voices continue today. Depending on one's sort of political outlook, some would say, the way that I'll that you should elect me is because I will lower taxes. They seek to lower taxes to get more votes. Others would say in order to get more votes, I, I'm telling you that I will tax the rich. And so both sides have this strong opinion on what they will do with relation to taxes. Perhaps just thinking about the topic of taxes increases your blood pressure just a little bit this morning. Here we are on Sunday the Sunday before taxes are due, in case you didn't realize that. Uh, that was not the original plan of this, just the, the providence of God that we land here. But, but perhaps it's a friendly re- reminder, taxes are due this week, but there's still time. So you still have a few hours left to work on those. But controversies about taxes didn't begin with the American Revolution. They go back long before that. And I wonder if you knew that Jesus himself faced a very volatile question about taxes. In fact, a trap set for him on the topic of taxes. And this morning we see Jesus address this loaded, significant question. We'll see from him wisdom for us today on how to live wisely and well in the world. So if you have a Bible today, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew 22. Today we return to our series in Matthew. We'll be in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 15. You can find that on page 827 in the Bibles we provided for you. Page 827, Matthew 22. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we'll be in chapter 22. The smaller numbers, the verse numbers, we'll start in verse 15. We'll work our way through verse 22. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love as a church to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table. There's a sign that says free Bibles. Please just grab one of those Bibles, follow in the service, take it with you as our gift to you this morning. So Matthew 22, beginning in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. They left him and went away. This morning in our passage, we see this emphasis. Live wisely under God and under government. Live wisely under God and under government. We'll look at our passage in two parts. So first, we'll see the tax trap. And then second, we'll see the payment plan. So the tax trap and the payment plan. So first, we have the tax trap in verses 15 through 17. We've seen just a few weeks ago in our passage that Jesus had entered into Jerusalem. And this is in the very last week, the days leading up to his crucifixion. 
And we see in our passage today that a group, the Pharisees, who've been in conflict with Jesus numerous times already, have plotted together how they might entangle or trap Jesus with his own words. The Pharisees were the leading group within Judaism of that day, typically outwardly quite moral, devoted, outwardly godly, but they're also deeply opposed to the occupation of the Romans of that day. On the other hand, we have this other group mentioned this morning called the Herodians, who were also a group of Jews, but who were favorable towards the regional ruler, Herod. So they were not altogether opposed to all that was coming from the occupying of the Romans. In fact, they, they felt positively about some of the elements of that. So not surprising, these two groups were typically in opposition, enemies of each other, and yet today we see these two together join forces. They form an alliance because of their shared opposition to Jesus. So they come to Jesus and they begin with flattering words. Look down at verse 16. They say to Jesus, teacher, we know that you are true. Teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. So when they arrive at Jesus, they don't immediately get to the question. They begin with some flattery. They speak very highly of Jesus even though deep down in their hearts, they despise him. They're out to undermine him. Ironically, all of their flattery was in fact true. They were accurate in all that they said about Jesus. He is true. He did teach the way of God truthfully. He didn't care about anyone's opinions. He wasn't swayed by appearances. And the flattery that they tried to use to set Jesus up didn't work because of some of what they had said. They said of him, he didn't care about anyone's opinions. And that is true. He didn't live for the approval of others. He wasn't fearful of the disapproval of others. So their flattery was completely without power. But for us, flattery often does influence us, doesn't it? We can so easily be captive to the opinions of others, loving the approval of others or deeply fearing their disapproval. One of the many reasons we need an identity grounded deeper, more substantial identity grounded in who we are in Jesus Christ. Now then after the flattery, they turn to their question. They set the trap. And here's the question, verse 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, the tax they're referring to was a poll tax. There were numerous taxes of that day, but this was a a tax that had been instituted by the emperor in the year 6 AD. Not a sales tax, not an income tax, but a tax that every living adult had to pay. And the amount of the poll tax was a denarius, which was equivalent to basically one day's wages. Now, when it had been instituted in 6 AD, there was a revolt led by a revolutionary named Judas of Galilee. The Romans came in and wiped out this revolt, but the tax still continued to be quite controversial, a source of great volatility and anger. And and for the Jews, it was just a reminder of these Gentile Romans and their heavy hand upon them. Now, how, though, was the question a trap? Well, if Jesus says, yes, pay the tax, then it would very likely undermine his support from the common people. 
For they were hoping that Jesus might be the true deliverer, that perhaps he was the promised Messiah, that he would ultimately then rescue them from Roman rule. So if he says, yes, pay the taxes to the Romans, he's no revolutionary at all. In fact, it looks like he's a sellout to Rome. So a yes to the question would undermine his support from the common person. On the other hand, if he says, no, don't pay the tax, then he's rebelling against Rome. And the heavy hand of Rome would would quickly come in and destroy his life. So you can see that it's a great dilemma. So it's a well-constructed question. And notice they, they corner him to say, yes or no, which is it? Which will it be? Do we give the tax or do we not? So it appears to be a strategically well-constructed test. How would Jesus respond? So we see a tax trap, but we see Jesus' brilliant response second with the payment plan in verses 18 to 22. We see verse 18 that Jesus knew what they were trying to do. Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? At first hearing, these are awfully strong words from Jesus to call them hypocrites. Might surprise us by his tone. But Jesus knew what they were trying to do. He knew where their hearts were. We've seen across this gospel that to those who are hurting, weak, compassionate, seeking, Jesus always welcomes with grace. Welcomes with love and compassion But here, to those who are seeking to destroy him, seeking to destroy God's people, Jesus spoke with force and directness. Jesus then says to them, show me the coin for the tax. So this typically was paid with this one coin, as I mentioned, the denarius. Evidently, Jesus did not have one in his own possession, so they brought him a coin. Now, the denarius was a Roman coin, And on one side, there was an image of Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side, the inscription, a picture of Tiberius' mother, and the words, high priest. So the coin itself was offensive to any good Jew. One, the simple fact that there was a a likeness inscribed upon it. But second, by the claim to be the son of the divine Augustus was claiming himself to be divine. So this coin itself was making a theological statement contrary to what all the Jews would have believed. So they despised the coin itself. Then Jesus asked them a question as he holds the denarius in his hand. Whose likeness, whose inscription is this? Whose image is on the coin? They respond, it's obvious, Caesar. Then Jesus gives his powerful answer, verse 21, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It's notable that Jesus did not have a denarius himself. So when they came inquiring, he did not reach into his pocket and say, well, I have a denarius right here. But those who were inquiring about the appropriateness of the use of the denarius, they somehow had one already. 
didn't take them long to produce one. So, so these were said outwardly. They were so opposed to the Romans. They wanted to trap Jesus by saying he would be in cahoots with the Romans. They have actually a denarius that they can produce. They're already using the coinage of Rome. Now, what Jesus literally says here when we have the word render is give back. So Jesus says, who owns the coin? Whose coin is this? It's Caesar's. Well, give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Another, another part of the sense of the word is also pay back to Caesar. Meaning if you owe Caesar tax, pay him the tax. But of course, Jesus didn't stop there. He went far beyond that to say, but also give back to God the things that are God's. So if you really think about the trap that they've laid out here, Jesus' response is brilliant. And we see that's the case because look at the response, verse 22, of the people who asked the question. When they heard it, they marveled, they left him, and went away. I mean, they come hoping to corner him, and he just does this sort of ultimate mic drop. And off they go. The discussion is over. The trap, he's gone free. Jesus faced traps consistently during his earthly ministry. This was not new to him. And he was not surprised by them. And so often by his answer, he would trap those seeking to set the trap. And friend, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, in this life at times, you will face some questions that may seem like a trap. Maybe a well-intentioned one, maybe not. But a question that may come from a family member, a friend, a coworker. It's not easy to face a trap like that. But friend, don't be surprised. Jesus has told us we'll face those. And the good news is, if you face those, when you face those, friend, as a Christian, Christ is with you by the Spirit. He will help you face a trap. So here Jesus instructs us that living wisely means honoring obligations to the government that we are living under. Here Jesus lays out a worldview that does not involve withdrawal from the world, but appropriately submitting to any government that we find ourselves living under. So to cut to the chase, should a Christian pay taxes Yes. We, we owe a tax, and so to be honoring those in authority, we are to pay it, and we have an obligation to fulfill. The Herodians, the Pharisees here, should they have paid the tax? Well, yes, it was the law of the land. And second, were they gaining from Rome? They were. The roads of the day, the stability that they lived within, some freedom from the fear of invasion, even a justice system that existed at the time. But as Christians, do we gain from the government? The fact is, yes, we do. The Apostle Paul speaks of how we should relate to government in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. Also in 1 Timothy 2, Peter addresses the relationship in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Because we see across the New Testament, there's a place for secular government in the world. And Christians are to seek to be good citizens. In glorifying God, we should always be exemplary citizens wherever we can. We are to 
honor, respect, and even pray for those in authority over us. That's why each Sunday morning in this opening prayer, you'll hear us pray for some who are in authority over us. And you may wonder, why do we do that? So, well, the Bible tells us to. It's a way of honoring and also praying for the good of them, even as that benefits those who live under it as well. So to the kids in the room, I don't think you probably pay taxes yet. It won't be long, but you don't pay them yet, typically. But did you know that you can do this very important call of obedience, which is to pray for those in authority over us? So you can pray for the mayor, pray for the school committee in your town, pray for the governor, pray for the senators, the, the president, the vice president. It's a good and godly and a right thing for kids to do. It's a good thing you maybe you could just remind your parents of as well, because they tend to forget that as we all do. So kids, until you pay taxes, pray, and then pay tax and pray as well. Now, at its basic level, governments are ordained by God to provide a basic level of structure and stability. The alternative is anarchy. And there's no, no good that would come of living in a world of anarchy. And the government, at its best, can do good. Government can help people. It can provide, for instance, roads, utilities, schools, various forms of assistance. Now, is any human government in this world ever going to be perfect? No, there will not be one. Every government, because it's filled by sinners, will be marred by sin. But government can do good. But at the same time, we should always remember that whatever the good the government can do, and it should do, and we should be thankful for it, the government can never do ultimate good. No government can ever do ultimate good. No government can bring true and lasting change at the level of the human heart. So our needs, the needs of every person, are greater than what even the greatest government can bring. So government can bring roads, sort of. Sometimes they have lots of holes in them. Sometimes the structures, you know, the, the, the projects are very long, but they can bring roads. But the government cannot bring salvation. The government can, can make it possible. And it really is amazing that you can just buy one simple stamp, put it on a letter, and mail it across the country. That's a really remarkable thing at such a price. But the government cannot bring to us eternal life. So friends, we seek to live wisely. Christians can engage within our communities, even within government, as individuals when that's possible. And the extent to which individuals may have a voice will vary widely from country to country. The experience of a Christian in America will be very different from the experience of a Christian in Saudi Arabia or in Afghanistan or so many other nations. Fellow Christians, we should always be mindful of living in other countries where they have very few freedoms and great danger and basically no voice at all. But the beauty of Jesus' wisdom is this principle applies under any and every government that exists in the world. So, friend, I wonder what about you? Do you pay your taxes? Do you seek to respect, to honor, speak well of, to pray for those in authority over us? 
it seems the simple concept of speaking well of those who are of a different political viewpoint than us is almost completely absent in our society. You don't have to agree with them. Is it possible to honor with the words that we say? Christians can and should engage, as we're able to, at various levels. It could be the local level of the school committee. It could be in regional politics or all the way to D.C. And friends, perhaps some of you, that should be a vocational direction for you, to engage in politics. That there would be God-glorifying, Jesus-loving politicians in D.C. And as we do this, we must always hold together both the value of what government can do at its best, but also ever mindful of all the things that government can never accomplish. Now, very significantly, Jesus didn't only say, render to Caesar, but also, and to God the things that are God's. So he had said, whose image is on the coin? Well, Caesar's. So his image is on it, it belongs to him. And the same reasoning applies here with God. Give back to God the things that are God's. So that leads to the question, well, what is God's? What belongs to God? Well, on one level, as the creator and sustainer of all things, all things belong to God. We'd ask the question, well, what has God's image on it? If the denarius had Caesar's image, what in this world or who in this world has God's likeness on it? We see at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the same word used for likeness here in our text, verse 20, is the word used for image in Genesis 1. For a central Christian idea is that all people were created in the image of God. All people bear the image of God. All people bear the likeness of God. That's certainly been impacted by sin, marred by sin, but it still remains. And therefore, all people are image bearers, and they therefore belong to God. And friend, Christians have historically and still do believe that therefore, all people have value. Every person has dignity because they are image bearers, young and old, rich and poor, weak and strong, educated, uneducated, born and unborn, all are image bearers. And friends, because we're created in the image of God and because we're rightly his and not our own, we are to give our ultimate allegiance only to God. Our ultimate allegiance must only be directed to the God of the universe. God's kingdom is over and above all earthly kingdoms, over and above all earthly nations. While at the same time, God's design has allowed authority to be had by these governments for the stability of society. But you can see here that Jesus is not saying that there are two distinct spheres. He's not saying there's the private life of faith and the public life of government. No, God is over all. And within that, there is this sphere of the public sphere of government. Jesus is not, does not allow us to push Christianity into only being a private faith. So the government has some authority, but it does not have an ultimate authority. Only God has ultimate authority. So Jesus affirms 
and limits the role and authority of every government. So as Christians, our ultimate hope is not in any nation. Our ultimate allegiance is in God alone. And friends, honestly, this can be a great temptation for those who live in the U.S. Allegiance to God must always surpass allegiance to any party, any cause, any movement. So friend, I wonder if you think deeply about yourself, where today is your ultimate allegiance? Not where do you say that it is, and it wouldn't be surprising if you said today because you've actually here at a church to say, well, no, it's in God. But, but in fact, in reality, tomorrow and Wednesday morning and Thursday evening, where is your allegiance then? Now, what is the Christian to do to live wisely when the government and God are at odds? Well, if Caesar's or any government were to claim what is God's, the claims of God always must have priority. The call to honor and worship God covers all of our lives. And when we serve Caesar or serve any government, it can be done in a way that honors God. But it will take significant discernment to faithfully determine when the two are at odds. When Caesar's expectations and God's are at odds. Because depending on our worldview, in our country today, there will be some who would find many, many things that they're saying the government is at odds with what God calls us to. Others who would say there's almost nothing the government could do that would be at odds with what God's word says. So it takes careful discernment. And honestly, friends, one of the many reasons we need other Christians, and very likely we need other Christians who have a different political viewpoint than us, that together we might think wisely and clearly in a discerning way not simply having voices that reinforce what we already want to think. So notice that Jesus won't let them press him into their categories. They want him to either be pro-Rome or against Rome, one or the other. Yet Jesus, by his response, says, I won't fit into your categories. I won't allow you to push me into them. But he's also not choosing some muddled middle ground. But friends, like Jesus' answer here, Jesus' way will at times make people on all sides uncomfortable. He will make people on all sides of various issues squirm. And so today people want to know, should a Christian be liberal or conservative? Should a Christian be a Democrat or a Republican? Which is it? One or the other? Make a choice, we say. Friends, the kingdom of Jesus and the way of Jesus cannot be neatly confined by one political viewpoint because there is not one truly, fully God-inspired political outlook. And no matter which side you are on, there are some ways that that group's views will echo those of Jesus. And there will be some ways that that group's views are different, in fact, opposite of Jesus. So Jesus will challenge some of those views. He may even call you to be more radically with certain views of a particular party. Friends, God's word should shape how we think about these various issues. But it will require work and thinking and discernment. 
Just one aspect that we think of that would impact our view is, is what we see in our text today, and that is the, the idea that all people are created in the image of God. For so much of what our society values is shaped by that, although few would admit this is where it comes from. But if we think about just the implications of that alone, all people are image bearers that have value and dignity, it would shape the way, therefore, we think about euthanasia, ending life for those who are old. In fact, the way we think about abortion, ending the life of the unborn, would shape the way we think about racism. It would impact how we think about refugees, about the justice in the prison system, about health care, and, and so many more issues just from this one principle alone. Tremendously impact. So this will cause us to be out of step with any one party at times. So Jesus Christ and the gospel must inform, shape our views. So friend, I wonder if you're honest, how currently does the word of God, does Jesus shape and inform your view of various issues and of politics? Are you more passionate about an issue political party than you are about Jesus and his kingdom? Is your worldview currently shaped more by scriptures or by what you read and watch and hear from people who share your political viewpoint? And friends, what so often happens is that people give to Caesar what belongs only to God. We give to government, to authority, our deepest allegiance, our hopes. And friends, especially if we do not have a God, it's so easy to make politics issues ultimate. Author and columnist Peggy Noonan writes this, for more and more Americans, politics has become a religion. People find their meaning in it. They define themselves by their stands. When politics becomes a religion, then simple disagreements become apostasies, heresies. And you know what we do with heretics. And friends, we see this in our society today. Politics and issues that do have significant value have become overvalued, which has produced great stress in our communities, in friendships, in families, in churches. So friend, when your candidate or your issue has a setback or loses, I wonder, how do you respond? Are you just crushed by that? Do you become overly anxious? Do you or have you become deeply angry with those who have a different view than you? Have you ended up with broken relationships? with family members, maybe with lifelong friends through a really helpful Facebook discussion about politics. I think the majority of us have probably faced something like that. So is it possible you've taken significant, important things but given them too much value? And friends, within the church, because we're citizens of the kingdom of Jesus, and even more that, members of the family of God, we should be able to disagree with one another on matters related to the state, to government, and to be more committed to our relationship with one another 
than we are to any particular issue or topic. And friends, in this, do you see the opportunity we have to live differently in our society that is fractured, stressed, angry? Friends, God's people have the peace of God in us by the Spirit that we should be able to engage in, in thoughtful dialogue, passionate involvement, and yet still not angry and destructive. Interested and engaged, but not consumed. And friend, if we could live like that today in the midst of this world, wouldn't it be attractive, curious, strange, to make people wonder where would someone have the capacity to do that. That's not because we're so good, not because we're so stable or strong, but it's the grace of God, the Spirit of God in us. As Jesus stood there that day with these opponents, there were really two different kingdoms that were on a collision course. One had coins, the other lived in humility. And to the world of that day, one king seemed clearly more powerful than the other. There was no question. We said, which kingdom truly has power, Caesar or Jesus of Nazareth? No question. Everyone would have said Caesar. For Caesar's kingdom would be the one that would ultimately put Jesus to death. He's the ruling emperor. He's the one with an army at his disposal. And look at Jesus. He has this ragtag band of followers, an unimpressive group of believers, no apparent wealth. So who was and is truly great. It looks like Caesar, but in fact, there is no comparison for Jesus Christ is infinitely greater. Caesar, who had the denarius, claiming to be the son of God and a high priest, would one day die. That would be the end of Tiberius. Friends, Jesus Christ is the true son of God, the perfect high priest who laid down position and authority, riches to come near, to take on flesh and walk among us and show us the perfect life, a life full of wisdom and grace, even the face of opposition and facing those who would trap him. Friends, you see that Jesus was a revolutionary, but a very different sort of revolution. His revolution was deeper and wider and, and more substantial than the simple question of what to do with a coin. And the pinnacle of his revolutionary act would, would not be refusing to pay taxes to Caesar, but it would be him paying the penalty of sin on the cross through his own death in the place of sinners and rebels like us. And friend, if you're not a Christian, we want you to know that Jesus came to rescue us. He did not come to set up a payment plan where we pay off our debt. He paid it all through his sacrificial death at our place, so that by his grace to any and all who receive it, this glorious gift of salvation is held out. And so, friend, if you're not a Christian, we would urge you, consider Jesus today. If you've been considering, turn to Christ even this morning and receive this free gift. For those of us who are Christians, friend, do you see the glory of your King Jesus? I mean, just to watch this one account, these who are angry with him, seeking to attack him and trap him, and yet perfect calm, wisdom, 
grace, an answer that there was no answer for. Do you see what your king is like? My friend, he will empower you to walk wisely. It is not easy to live wisely in this world, in a politically charged society, but he will give you grace. He will give us grace to walk together even with differences and love and bear with and forgive and make mistakes and forgive again together. So friends, let's give him our ultimate allegiance. Let's trust him that his wisdom is best. Believing that he will empower us to live wisely in the midst of this world to the glory of God.